Thank you so much. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. From Mamma Mia, welcome to The Watch, The Spill's special bonus series where once a month we deep dive on one buzzy new TV show that everyone is talking about, or in this case, changing the world. I'm just going to put it out there. (laughs) I'm Laura Brodnick. I'm the head of entertainment here at Mamma Mia, and I'm joined by... I'm Chelsea McLaughlin. I am Mamma Mia's senior entertainment writer and your co-host of The Spill. Yes, exactly. We both go by many monikers and names, mysterious (laughs) young women. So today we're talking about a show that we have both been very excited about. Mm -hmm. We watched it, we had a lot of thoughts, and we thought this has to be our show of the month. So we're talking about A League of Their Own, the new TV series, not the movie. (laughs) Um, It's a really stale take on the 90s movie. Just a real throwback. Oh, Mm. I could do a podcast on that movie. Just like there's a lot of thoughts on that, but on Prime Video. And obviously a lot of the time with these episodes, we like to have a drink that the characters Mm. also Mm. indulge in. So we just in case you wonder what that sound is. So we ransacked the communal mummy fridge. I really hope these didn't belong to someone. We didn't check. Oh, well. We've got some beers. (laughs) As you see, the ladies drink in the bar scenes and in the house. So Cheers. Cheers. As always, we are talking about this show in its entirety, all the episodes that are out now on Prime Video, so there is going to be spoilers galore. So if you haven't watched it, what are you doing here? Get the hell out, go over to Prime Video, watch the series, and then come back. Batter up, hear that call. The time has come for one and all to play. Okay, so we wanted to kick off by talking about the genesis of this show. So obviously it is based on the iconic movie that came out in 1992, A League of Their Own. It was a huge commercial and critical success, which was, I mean, it's still a big deal today, but especially back then to have a female-led film making that much money at Mm. the box office straight away. It was actually based on a short documentary that came out in 1987 about the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. And when director Penny Marshall, who was very much the driving force, the producer and the director behind the film, when she saw that documentary on TV, she immediately knew that she could take this world. Like it was so vibrant, had all these amazing stories from women that hadn't been told before, that she could take that and put it into a feature film. So that was where the whole idea was born. So what's really interesting here is that I don't think that you have to. I mean, obviously watching the movie does help because there's so many little callbacks. Like I wanted to stand up and cheer when they said the line in the series, there's no crying in baseball because obviously that that became, I mean, it's a bit off Tom Hanks' character having the only, (laughs) (laughs) the most iconic line, but Mm. it's just so well delivered and funny having those moments in the series. But I don't think you have to have watched the movie Mm. because the series was co-created and executive produced by Abby Jacobson and Will Graham. And of course, Abby Jacobson also plays the lead actress of Carl. 
Carson Shaw. And their thinking behind this is they both grew up being huge fans of the movie and the place it kind of held in pop culture. Mm -hmm. And when they looked at that IP and what to do with it next, their idea was very much like that movie and that story doesn't need to be remade or retold. But when they were looking at the series, they thought there's all these little side players and characters. And also because 1992, like it wasn't that long ago, like about Mm. 30 years or so. um, (laughs) Yeah, that's a sore point for me. Yeah, you're about to turn 30. Oh, God. (laughs) Even though it was very groundbreaking to have women be the leads of the film at the time, we still weren't in a space where you could be telling queer stories as Mm -hmm. the main stories or even having black women in the films. And those people existed, obviously, in this time and in this storyline with the baseball league and that was all happening, but they couldn't tell them. So their idea was to make a series and bring all those stories that were seen as side stories in the past and make them the main Mm. storylines like they should have been back then. Yeah, like the whole narrative around this show is that it's not a reboot in the traditional sense, more of a reimagining of telling the stories that obviously always existed, but they just weren't told. And so, yeah, the reimagining thing, I think, is a really interesting way to tackle something that is so beloved and kind of like just widen the lens of that story. Yeah, exactly. And that's a real sore point with me with reboot culture. And I know this isn't exactly a reboot, but reboot, reimagining, mm-hmm. remake, all those kind of shows and universes, it kind of exists together. And I feel like when people get really angry about things being reimagined or rebooted, they're sometimes not seeing the nuance of what is actually needed in storytelling. Like maybe the first iteration was made for you. Like if you're a white straight person, uh-huh. everything was made for you. So the idea of like rebooting it is then being able to make a different story for people whose stories were weren't told, like the idea that it's lazy storytelling or that there are no new ideas doesn't factor into the conversation when the project is being made for a new group of people, I feel. So true. And it also doesn't cancel out the fact that that movie still exists in its original form. Yeah, exactly. You can just go back and watch that. Oh, yeah. I watched it last night and I thought, because I was quite desensitised (laughs) to it because I think this is the third time I've Uh watched it, and I thought, well, I cried the first two times. I'm not going to cry this time. Absolutely cried. It's a real tearjerker. If you haven't, it's also on Prime if you want to go watch it. So let's talk about the characters that we find in this new league of their own universe. So as I said, we've got Abby Jacobson as Carson Shaw, a married woman who sneaks away to join. So she's almost a reimagining, I think, of Gina Davis's Dottie in the original, but obviously with a few different personality traits and also sexual traits put in there that we'll talk about a little bit later. Shante Adams as Maxine, Darcy Carden as Greta Gill, I thought was a really interesting choice. And then you kind of go on how they've populated the team of players by having like people from different walks of life and different backgrounds and nationalities all in this team. I mean, to an extent, as much Mm. as you could have back then. Yeah, so there's the Lupe and Esty, right, who are Latina. Yes. And it's a really interesting dynamic. We're going to talk a lot about the two sort of storylines where there's the Peaches and then you have Max and Clance and their sort of stories. But I think it's really interesting that there's nuance within those stories as well. You have the Latina characters and there's ways in which they are treated within the team and within sort of the wider baseball community that is different. And I just love... We're going to talk about this, but I don't want to give it away. But, (laughs) God, the nuance in this show is so good. Yeah, exactly. I think there's so many layers to this show, and so much of it does play as, like, a broad comedy, which makes a lot of sense, especially coming from Abby Jacobson, whose background is very much in comedy. And I think the fact that a lot of these performers had backgrounds or, like, friendships and that sort of thing Mm. off screen that kind of came across was really interesting. Obviously, the big one is that Abby Jacobson and Darcy Carden have been best friends for 15 years, which is adorable. So they met at the Upright City 
Citizens Brigade, which is like improvisation, like a very famous improvisation school and studio. And they talked about being on the same team together. And then when Abby Jacobson started Broad City, which was her super popular TV show, that Amy Poehler was the driving force behind mm. because Amy Poehler was one of the founders of UCB. It's all coming oh, together. Yep. Okay. Um, she tried to get, Dar- well, she did get Darcy Carden as her best friend who couldn't get an acting job at the time on the show, but her part got cut. <gasps> so she initially was on the show and she later came back as a guest star. Mm. But I think it was so interesting that when she was writing Greta, she almost wrote it for Darcy Carden to have her best friend be on screen together. And I was reading an interview where Abby Jacobson said that she sent Darcy the script and then Darcy kind of came into the interview and was like, I was actually really nervous because what if it was awful? Like it could be mm. awful. But the reason she wanted to do it is because when she left The Good Place, where she was famously played Janet. Janet and all of her iterations. So (laughs) many Exactly. I mean, she is so talented in that show of like pulling off all the different facets of that character and bad Janet. Oh, so good. But Ted Danson told her, whatever you take next, make it as far from Janet as possible. And that's why she wanted to play Greta Gill because that just seems so far removed. So then when she said, like, I loved the pilot, Abby left like a handwritten note inside a catcher's mitt, like the one you've got there that you don't know how to use. formally inviting her to be on the show. So I think so much about their on-screen chemistry comes from the fact that they've been best friends for 15 years, but now they get to kiss. Oh, my God. I love that story. I think that you can tell, right? I really thought that those two characters, the chemistry there was so fun. Just yeah. like a really fun vibe. You could tell that they were enjoying themselves and then obviously they were kissing and I believed it. Mm. Like you could tell that they were very close. Yeah, exactly. And I also loved the friendship between the character of Greta and also Joe DeLuca, played yes. by Melanie Field, who she was in the TV show of Heathers, which had a very problematic run because it contained a lot of very violent scenes that had to get taken off TV and then getting put back on again. So I feel like she was like really meant to be this new, exciting, leading lady, but because of the kind of semantics around that, didn't get that chance. But I feel like she gets that big starring role with the character of Joey because Joey's so eye-grabbing. Mm-hmm. And I also love how Greta and Joey are like maybe a bit of a riff on Rosie O'Donnell and Madonna's characters in the movie. So her character and Rosie O'Donnell's character, Doris, are very much like a pair of best friends through Mm -hmm. the whole movie. And May is the very glam one and Doris is the very tomboy one. And so you kind of see this iteration again in Greta and Joey. But what you see this time is that they're actually allowed to be queer characters, whereas that was kind of always maybe thought particularly about Rosie O'Donnell's character, Doris, Mm -hmm. in the series, even though she did talk about having a boyfriend because you couldn't actually make these queer characters back then. People would not have watched that movie in the same way. Probably Mm -hmm. like a lot of people would have been very against it, which is horrific to think about. But I think now you're kind of seeing those characters in a new form, which is so interesting. And we're also getting to see all kinds of relationships. You've got queer relationships, you've got non-queer relationships, you've got relationships within the queer community that are not romantic, queer friendship, and just like the unconditional support and like also like the different kinds of, I guess, rules that they have within each other to keep each other safe and just like check in. And I really loved that. It was just like the relationships in the show were so well done. And I think also like sometimes it does feel so modern because you've got this like group of women and their dialogue I felt was like quite modern at the time. And then you have all these throwbacks where you're like, oh, it's like almost a painful reminder that you're in the 40s. Like the Peaches were a real team. Mm. And a lot of these characters are based either directly or a bit indirectly on real women who played in the league. And this is all what they went through. So when they made the team, people actually did get asked to leave if they weren't pretty enough. And they actually did have to go through the training 
they do where they have to do the walking and having mm. tea and, and put on I, the makeup. Yeah. Oh, that was really heartbreaking. Yeah. They tell that first character to go home, and then the character of Jess nearly gets sent home. I think yeah. that's the first time where you see Greta and Carson kind of come together to say, like, oh no, 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 like she was just helping us. We'll mm. go fix her makeup, and you see her like save her. And later on, when Carson says to Greta, "I wouldn't have done that if that wasn't for you," it's the first little look at what their relationship's going to be like. And curtsy. Miss Donnelly, thank you so much, but that'll be all. I can do it how you no, like I, me to do I it. I don't believe I'm you so can, sorry, dear. dear. No, it's going to be They'll all be right. Waiting, waiting for you after you pack. Why do you think they're doing all of this, Carson? It's to make sure that we don't look like a bunch of queers. Do you get that? That's what all of this is. Or maybe it just doesn't affect you, Mrs. Shaw. Miss McCready, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to have you. No, 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 you can't. No, no, Jess was helping us with our makeup, which is why she doesn't have her makeup on yet. Then I suggest that you return the favor. No? We're going to help you. Oh, and I just love the relationships and the way in which they look after each other and, like, rally and keep each other safe. And I think that is something that is fundamental to this story. And the way in which it's done is just, like, throughout the entire thing, you see them constantly just being like oh, make sure you're careful about that or, like, you know, we've got to do that this way. And, like, that was so important at the time. Yeah, exactly. Let's get into that part of it because what you're saying is, like, those rules, the yeah, rules, the as rules. they say, that Greta and Joey specifically have. Mm. And you kind of get bits and pieces of their backstory that they're both queer women or, you know, Greta says that she also likes to date men and women but she's so pedantic about making sure that she gets seen out with a man yes. before she starts something with a woman. They have rules around how much time they can spend together, who they can talk to, where they can go. And they've said before that when things get dangerous, they have to automatically leave. So that's why they're always travelling just with a suitcase in their hand, mm. running from this idea that being queer women at this point in time was so very dangerous and also illegal. And so you kind of see that storyline playing out. But I thought it was interesting how they took all different sexual identities and all different ways of like being queer or how you identify and kind of melded them through the story. It's also really good at showing the different ways in which different queer people and different queer people that represent in different ways go through life and like, you know, some of the characters are more willing to take risks than others. Particularly the more femme presenting characters are able to kind of move through life in a much easier way than some of the more butch characters. And that nuance, because quite often we talk about queer stories, but queer stories are not this big umbrella. Like Mm. there's so many different stories within that and the show with such a wide cast is able to tell the lots of different little little nuggets of different lives. Yeah, exactly. I remember reading an interview with Abby Jacobs. I've read, I'm like obsessive about this show, so I've read so many interviews with her where she said that some of the initial feedback was like, oh, do all the characters have to be gay or queer? Mm. And her response to that was like, well, they're not. We're telling a wide spectrum of stories. But also we've had to watch so many shows where all the characters are straight. So it shouldn't really be a kind of huge thing about flipping that narrative around. And obviously the character of Max plays so much into, I mean, there's so many nuances to Max story because she's a woman, she's queer and she's black. So there's already three huge points against her where there's so many spaces where she's unsafe, so many opportunities that she can't have. And I just think the way that her story is told, the way Shante Adams portrays her is so interesting. And the way her character is brought into the series. So mm. in A League of Their Own is that very famous scene where they're like, it's quite far into the movie and they're out in the pitch, pitch field. 
not a sports person. They're out on the baseball area playing. <laughs> <laughs> but Shante Adams' character of Max is based off that one moment in the movie. So you have Dottie, who's the main character, and a few of the other players out on the baseball field and the ball gets hit into the segregated area mm. of the audience. So you have the white people out to sit in one area, the black people in another area, and a black woman steps onto the field. She picks up the ball and she pitches it back with such skill and strength that Gina Davis's character who catches it is like quite like overwhelmed by how strong the pitch mm. was and the fact that how she threw in her skill level and then this black woman and Dottie, the main character, make eye contact and they both nod. It's this kind of moment where they're both acknowledging that they're women who are trying to play this game and they're both not allowed to play in the way they'd want but Gina Davis's character being white is allowed to be on the field and this black woman isn't. So what A League of Their Own did with a TV show was say, but what if we followed that woman off the field and also Mm. told her story, which is where the character of Max comes in. So Max is actually inspired by three separate women. So Toni Stone, Marmee Johnson and Connie Morgan. And she's sort of like an amalgamation of these three women who played in the Negro League alongside men, as, spoiler alert, Max then goes to do at the end of the series. So I interviewed Shante Adams, and honestly, can I just say, like, one of the best interviews I've done in a long time. Wow. And for a lot of these sort of, like, junkets where it's about the show, it's very much like, you know, you have your sort of set questions and not so much that you can discuss because you're just there to talk about the show. But in this case, talking about the show with her was just, like, such a revelation. She just spoke so, so passionately about the story and just, like, it was amazing. She said that she considered Max sort of like the forgotten voice of yes, the original. Yes, that's so right? true. Like it was telling a story that existed but just wasn't able to be told until this point. And so like I really like that Max is I think the richest story. You know, we know so much about her life. We see her family life, we see her relationships, we see her friendships, which is just we'll get onto this but yeah. my favorite <laughs> part. Max has the richest sort of story within the entire thing and I just, I love it. I love it. I think it's so important and so well done as well. Yeah, exactly. And I also like like none of these characters, like they're all really touching on these huge issues, but none of them seem like caricatures or like overly virtuous. They're all very flawed too. And like you're saying with Max, we see all these different sides to her and we see the different elements she's facing from her family who everyone wants her to be a particular way and a particular thing while not allowing her to do the things she wants to do. And I feel like her whole storyline is about not only wanting to play baseball and wanting to like use her skill but having to almost come out to her family again and again not coming out as queer but coming out as like I can't be defined by one simple thing but at the same time she's a very flawed character which I think is very interesting and I think you see her flaws in almost her single-mindedness around the game and I think like it's almost up to her friend Clance who those two my favorite new TV best friends duo, their chemistry, their quips together, their relationship. For me, they are almost the central love story of the show. Oh, hard agree. They are so good and so, like, well-crafted. You have the, like, unconditional support and, like, the ability to joke around in, you know, situations that are pretty horrible. You don't want to be joking around potentially, but they are able to turn something that's horrible into a really, like, lovely situation and then you also have them you know checking each other and keeping each other accountable and also keeping each other safe like I think of the scene where Max is in the restaurant or the bar Mm. and you know she's getting angry and yelling and Clance has to like pull her aside and be like you can't do that and just like that ability to keep each other safe and just to like always like I think they say like you're my person or you're my 
one. Like, yes, it's just so evident. I agree. They're like my favorite friendship on TV right now. Obsessed. Ex- just so good together. The moment when they first go into the factory, and Clance is so yes. nervous about going on that, oh. and then she sees someone she knows and waves like, "Hey, girl!" And then she's like, "Oh, she is dumb <laughs> as a rock. If she can do this job, I can do yeah. this job easily." She once called my house and asked for my number. So is my favorite <laughs> line from this. But like you're saying, they also check each other. And one of the moments where we see kind of a real flaw in Max and like how so, you, so that she's not always presented as like an overly righteous character is when she becomes so consumed with her dream and what she wants that she goes to Clance's house forgetting that her husband has just been sent away to war which oh my god that scene ripped my heart out too because there's so much to tell in this story and the nuances of sexuality and race and feminism and all those things that sometimes like it does tell the story of World War II and what was happening at the time but I think maybe the movie touched on that a bit more because it was more of a central theme for them and they showed the anguish of these women knowing their husbands were away. There's a really iconic scene in the movie where a telegram gets delivered and you just know that the telegram mm. is saying that someone's husband is dead and there's no name on it. And so Tom Hanks's character has to go and snatch it out of his hands. And there's this moment where he walks slowly through the room and you're holding your breath, like which woman is about to find out her husband died. And I think there's nuances of that in this show. But the main kind of storyline was seeing Clance's husband go off to war and that moment where she says, what are you most afraid of? And he's like, losing my glasses, which is obviously like just a starting off point for all of his fears of being in danger and being out of control and being away from his wife. But, oh, that scene broke me. Yeah, that's horrible. And then her coping mechanism, which is to do the comics. Which is so interesting because in like she and Max are both trying to get into male-dominated areas. I mean, you wouldn't have a black woman at the time making comic books or being an artist or being allowed to be involved in that industry the same way that Max can't go into the baseball league. So they both have these same things. But I think it was interesting where she was just like, are you serious? My husband just got sent to war. I cannot deal with your baseball problems right now. But obviously then they sort of come back around to their friendship later on. And that's what a true friendship is, like just being like, no bullshit, you need to sort your stuff out. Like, this is what's going on. And that is like, I think that's a part of friendship that we don't often see in television, yeah. to be honest. Like, a lot of it is the good times or, like, the jokes. And we do see those as well in this story. But that ability to call each other out on the bullshit, so good, so important. Exactly. And I feel like we also see that relationship between Carson and Max because, mm. obviously, the whole series is split into these two different worlds and they're very much the leaders of these two storylines. So I can see that there would have been this real enticement to have them come together more, to have them become best friends. And also, I feel like if this show had been written maybe even five years ago, there would have been a very white saviour thread yes. from the character of Carson who would have to come in and, and save Max and stand up for mm-hmm. her. And it would become about her. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think the show is really careful to avoid that as much as it can. And it shows Carson being very clueless about, like, she feels comfortable setting up for women and comfortable setting up for herself because she knows that area. But she does nothing when Max is told to leave the field. And when Max brings it up to her later, she can't even see that that's an issue. But, like, mm. she can't because it's just so out of her world. And so when you see them come together and have those conversations and also Max, like, just lightly blackmailing her, it's yeah. a very much more realistic friendship than the poor black woman and the white saviour who's going to come in and fix things for her. Particularly the way in which they meet up, which is is always, you know, in secret, maybe at night or at a field where no one's around. And because if they were seen, you know, just walking through the city together, everyone would side-eye and be like, well, potentially that's not allowed. 
And the other thing I wanted to talk about is that coming off such a famous movie property like the show did, I can see that there would be very much the idea that you'd want to put a lot of cameos in there. Mm. Like if, you know, you're kind of thinking like when Abby Jacobson is first starting to kind of pull this show together, like are you getting on the phone to Madonna and Gina Davis? You're not getting on the phone to Madonna. (laughs) You're like sending an email to someone that's like four layers below Madonna. And she makes you do the Madonna boot camp before she'll talk to you. Exactly, exactly. Madonna's not answering a phone. But, yeah, exactly. So she's maybe season two, we can dream. So what's interesting is that the show's creators have said that they were very mindful to stay away from that because it would almost be too distracting having all yeah. the movie characters popping in and out all the time. Like if you're trying to set yourself aside and tell a different story, then that's only going to keep people thinking of the movie and thinking mm-hmm. about the characters mm-hmm. and how it links together. But what's interesting about Rosie O'Donnell in particular is that she went to the writer's room when it was just being formulated and that's kind of where her cameo came about. So Abby Jacobson, you know, went to Rosie and was like, I want to make this show. And Rosie was like, is it going to be a queer show? And Abby was like, she hadn't thought of it in that way, but essentially was like, well, actually, now that I think about it, yes. And Rosie O'Donnell was like, well, good luck with that, which is so fair. Yeah. Like Rosie would probably think, well, that's not going to happen because it couldn't happen up until this point, you know? Mm. And I just think that's so interesting. And then obviously they had further discussions as the show kind of became in production and that sort of thing. And then we ended up with the cameo of Rosie as Vi in the underground club. Hey, sweetie. Hi, honey. This is my beautiful wife, Edie. She is a huge Peaches fan. Yes, I am. Uh, I I know you from outside the theater. Yes. You you said your wife? Yes, my wife. (laughs) You you were with a man, and I I just assumed that he was your husband. Oh, no, no, no. That was not my husband. That was our friend, Danny. Danny. Over there. I just, I don't... How is any of this possible? I mean, the bar, you being married. How is this allowed? It's really not. And we faced some hard times. We had to move around a lot, but we've been here six years. It's been pretty good, great home. I mean, it's not a mansion, but I am working on that. I like it. You do? I do, I like it very much. All right, I'd like something a little bigger, you know, a little showier for the friends. We got married here, not officially. But it was by far the best day of my life. Oh, you're so sweet. That's from episode six, Stealing Home, which, I mean, you don't want to say there's a most powerful episode because there's powerful moments throughout Mm -hmm. it, but I thought this was such a culmination of everything the characters had been going through. And because I had this brief moment of happiness, I was like, oh, it's it's coming. Something terrible is about to happen. And so it's like a speakeasy secret club called The Office. And it's so interesting because Carson's obviously tracking Lupe there, thinking that she's having secret Mm. meetings with the other team, and then finds out, which is like, it was so funny how Lupe and Jess were like, not only do we come here all the time, we're both queer, <laughs> we're actually quite famous players in this space. Like they're, the people they're, love us. Yeah, they're the two <laughs> players that show up every night and everyone's like, oh, I wonder who they're going to go home with. Everyone's into them, which was so funny. And so having Rosie O'Donnell, who has faced so much discrimination for being a gay woman uh-huh. in the public eye, has worked so much in that space, has just been one of the kind of the key figures in that space in pop culture and entertainment over the years. And she kind of pitched this idea that she would do this cameo and be this character. And when you see this character 
explain to Carson, whose mind is just blowing, mm. Mm. that such a space could exist, that people could be out there just being themselves and enjoying their life together like this. And when Vi says, like, this is my wife, we got married here, happiest day of my life, all that sort of stuff, you just see everything in Carson's mind changing about what she thought life could be. She's so wide-eyed. She's like, whoa, this world that, like, she just had no idea existed, existed, and it could exist in the secret underground thing until it couldn't exist, Right. And then later in that same episode when, you know, the speakeasy gets raided, that it all just kind of like crashes down of like the reality of this time and the fact that this safe space is not in fact a safe space. I had chills watching it from the moment that door opens and the guy at the front says, are you a friend of Dorothy, which is a term where there's no like kind of set idea where it came from, but it's Mm. a widely used term to talk about someone who identifies as LGBTQ+. And even though the precise kind of origin of it isn't known, it's believed to come from The Road to Oz, which is a sequel Mm -hmm. to the first novel, not the movie, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. And in the book, uh, you get introduced to a character called Polychrome who meets Dorothy and her travelling companions at such an even more wild, colourful world in the movie. The movie really toned this world down. And Polychrome says to Dorothy, you have some queer friends, Dorothy. And she replies, the queerness doesn't matter so long as they're friends. And so that's kind of yeah, where it's thought right. to be. But obviously there's a lot of different ways. And yeah. also, you know, have the like, character of Dorothy and the idea of Judy Garland playing Dorothy and she's very much become a queer icon as mm-hmm. has her daughter Liza Minnelli. So there's lots of ties in there. But I thought it was so interesting in this episode how much they ran this storyline parallel to The Wizard of Oz and having the characters in the show go and watch the movie and experience it and what they took away from it. Yeah, that is such a – because obviously you have Dorothy – thinking she wants something else. She's, you know, going into a different world, meeting Mm. different people. There's kind of a similar story thread there with what some of the characters, like Carson really identifies with Dorothy Mm. because she lives this kind of bland black and white life and then she meets new people and goes to a different world and everything's in colour, whereas Clance sees Dorothy as the villain, which I thought was so funny. Like she was taking away the fact that she was asking people to do free (laughs) labour, which is a fair point. Totally. Kills someone then says, "You, everyone else has to work for me. And also a little bit like, follow me. I'll take you into like imminent danger. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So she sees through that. And I just thought like watching the office scene where you see everyone dancing and everything and and also knowing that the producers and the creative team had really worked to make that feel like, I mean, all of these places existed in real life and Mm. were the only kind of safe spaces. So like they would say like they'd be sitting down to film a scene they'd look under the table and like names would be written like Ruth plus Nancy. And so you're kind of imagining like that's been put there because you're imagining Ruth and Nancy maybe met there years ago and like the set was meant to look like a living breathing replica of what these spaces had really been like for these people who it was the only place they could be together. That is incredible. Watching it with a 2022 lens is like I know that it shouldn't be surprising but you know even just think that that was the 90s when the movie came out and these stories couldn't be told 30 years ago like it is wild like the fact that these people couldn't live their truth. Oh, it just makes me mad. Look, I'm getting off like angry now. <laughs> oh, I know. And I'm sure everyone who like lives this is their experience is like, guys, yes, obviously it's so dangerous for us to even in 2022 to step out of the exactly. front door. And like we as straight women are only just kind of getting a taste of that watching it on screen. And it's also so very powerful how the raid on the office, which is one of the most like it's not violent in the fact that it's overtly violent, but just the violence in the air of what's happening to these people is so strong that I almost had to cover my eyes 
eyes. Mm. And the fact that you're seeing that at the same time as that Max is at her uncle's house and for the first time ever she's dressed in a way that she feels like herself because she's not wearing the full suit but half the suit and she's dancing with a woman and you see this beautiful freedom contrasted with the police coming in and beating them and yelling at them just for being who they are. And it is really violent, obviously, there's the beating, but it feels violent because it's like it's such an assault on these people and their true selves and their entire being, like their whole aura and existence is being attacked. Yeah, It's just like so... Oh, and Vi throwing themselves against the door yes. to try and buy more time yep. for the customers to get out and saying, everyone get out, run. And mm-hmm. obviously I knew this was going to happen because Joey and Greta didn't want to go. They didn't feel safe. That's because they have stayed safe all this time mm-hmm. living by their rules. This is one of the first times they break those rules. And then obviously Greta and Carson are able to escape straight into a Wizard of Oz screening to mm-hmm. kind of bring the whole metaphor full circle. And then poor Joey is the one who's taken into custody. And when we see her later, she's just, not even that she's being beaten, like she physically looks broken, but just internally you can't imagine what's happened to her. And also the way in which Greta, especially that morning, is like so, so panicked about what's happened to her because God knows what could have happened to her. Mm. Because she's seen, like she says her first girlfriend got taken away yeah. institutionalised, exactly. so she's seen the danger, whereas Carson has not really, like she's obviously aware of the danger around mm. this, but not as much as Greta because she hasn't had to actually have that thought before of what the consequences would be. Like they're in two very different stages of this part of their lives. And so seeing that play out is so interesting. And obviously it ends with Joey being traded to another team, which I understand. So this is one of the parts where it does try and follow the movie's trajectory a little bit mm-hmm. in terms of there is a situation. I want to spoil it for anyone I else. I feel like you can't put a spoiler alert on a 30-year-old movie. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a moment where one of the key players, the sister of the main girl, is traded to another team. And then those teams come together in the championship, which is what we see happen here, uh-huh. which is a great storytelling way to make the stakes even higher totally. because then it's not just a cut and dry thing of like, I want this team to win. You've got characters you're invested in on both sides and so then the win becomes so much more complicated. Do you know what I think was done so effectively throughout the entire show is the underdog thing and that comes from the crowd yelling sexist shit, the people that are financing it being like, oh, look at the size of their calves, like that kind of stuff obviously puts them as an underdog in this, like, sexist world. They're an underdog within the league because they're not winning every game. But the fact that they're an underdog becomes so much more important when you think about not necessarily, like, the baseball, which I do want to say, like, I loved the baseball. Like, it was so fun to watch. It's such a cinematic game, really, because you've got the pitching and the batting (laughs) and the running, and it's so, like, it's all these big moments. And also, unlike some other team sports, you're very much alone in a lot of your, like, you're the only one who can step up to Mm. bat and that sort of thing. So you have these really high and low moments. And it's also quite a brutal sport in some ways, even though it's not a contact sport, just in terms of, like, the physicality of the slide and the jumping and all that sort of stuff, but they're also having to do it looking like beautiful ladies. Yeah, agreed. So, yes, I loved the baseball, but I really liked the underdog sort of thing because the stakes were high, not necessarily in the sport, but in the fact that these women are here living out a dream, kind of against all odds, really only because there's a war happening. And so the stake is that their dream could just be ripped away from them, and I thought that that sort of underdog thing that's woven throughout the entire series and culminates in that final 
was like really, really well done. I was rooting for them, not necessarily for the sport, but for like their dreams. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh my God, I was so tied to it. And there's so many moments where they could do the cliched sports movie yes. thing and have them just come out on top, but they kind of do beat them down a lot. And the main example of that is when you think that Max, who has been trying to get on to the company's team for so long, is working at the factory, has done everything mm-hmm. and has put all the mechanics in place to do this, is denied again. And then you have that moment where she walks onto the field and throws her paycheck oh. down. I'm going to, whoever can beat me at this can ha- take two weeks of my wages. And then she goes to pitch. And you, as a viewer, you sit up in your chair more straight because you're like, this is the moment. No one's given her a shot. And she's finally going to prove them wrong. And those dirty men are about to <laughs> have it slapped in their faces. And I can't wait for this moment. And then she can't pitch because she gets mm. the, what they call the yips, which I think is a real thing, like a sporting term, where you all of a sudden like get in your own head and like oh. you can't psychologically do the thing that your body knows how to do. <laughs> You're talking about sports and my like, did you just see my eyes <laughs> yeah. glaze over? I only know about this in the context <laughs> of this movie. I don't know anything about sports. And so you have these moments where you're like, oh, that was the moment where you could have mm. been the sports movie. But they're trying to tell a more complex story, which I understand. And then obviously the pay, like I was so impatient for the payoff. I was yeah. like, Max is amazing. When does everyone get to see yeah. it? Like, are these people actually going to get to see it or we have to wait for season two? I can't do that. And then when she actually has the moment to go on a replacement pitch and you just see that she is so amazing, then you have the sports movie payoff. But she had to earn it first. Oh, yeah, I agree. It took so long. And you even had all the sort of like drama of the open day thing yeah. at her work, which was weird. And the tension between her and the one other woman on this team that's like living the dream. She initially is like, oh, my God, look, there's someone who's doing it. I can do it too. And then there's sort of hostility there. Yeah. And then she is like, her dreams are sort of crushed a little bit further. And it was just like, Give me Max's moment. I know. Actually, that's so interesting. There's so many moments in this series where they give you the cliche and then completely turn it on its head and then you can't find your footing because it's so kind of away from how stories are meant to be told. And I think the other character they do that with really well is Nick Offerman's character as Casey Dove Porter. Yeah. Because if anyone's watched the movie, you'd know that Tom Hanks's character, he's really made to be like the heart and soul of that Mm. movie. You know, he shows up as this washed up drunk player, doesn't even watch the first game is like unconscious and is so embarrassed and so angry that he has to be on this team and then you see him go along and realize these women know what they're doing I'm going to train them more I'm going to stick up for them some light sexual harassment from his character throughout the movie that is a bit that's the only part of the movie that doesn't hold up today whereas like oh he's a bit of a cad he just grabbed that woman and kissed her because he knew (laughs) it would make her uncomfortable not great but anyway moving past that (laughs) but at the end he becomes one of the heroes of the team and he gets off another Mm. job but he was like I will not leave the peaches you know, they're my team and <laughs> yeah. I'm here to like look after them. And when they lose at the end, he's the one consoling them. Like you did a good job, Like you are ball players. This is what you were meant to do. Mm. And so you have this like white man saviorish. Yeah. And I think when Nick Offerman comes on, because he's such a beloved comedy actor and who he is as a human being, like we like him and he, mm. you know, he's a funny in interviews and he and Megan Mullaney have this like iconic relationship and yeah. he's so funny. So when he comes on, all of that background filters in and you think he's Tom Hanks 2.0, he's going to stay with this team and he's going to be their coach and he's going to, you know, kind of really turn things around and then that doesn't happen. And then he's just gone and it's like, bye, Nick It's like he didn't believe in them (laughs) and he left. Exactly. And then it's like, well, actually, Nick Offerman, screw you. We didn't need you. 
they didn't need you. Exactly. I think that's one of the biggest like important differences yeah. from the film to the TV show is that Carson becomes the coach and you have the women looking after themselves all the way through and there is no male saviour in sight. Like there's a few good male characters in the show. They're not saying all men are bad, but they don't have a place <laughs> in this story, which mm. is so interesting. So anyway, bringing us to the final game, obviously we've got Joey on one team and the Peaches on the other and there's such complexity to that. I cried. I cried too. <laughs> I was I was just like, this is perfect. Because it was like the emotion and also because so much had passed between Joey and Greta, who as yes. much as I say like Max and Clance are the love story, I think the other love story yeah. is really their friendship. And Joey was just so broken, but you see that she's kind of found her place with this new team and then disaster strikes. I went into that episode and that game being like, Peach is going to win. I'm back in the peaches. Yeah. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, Peach's biggest fan. And then that happened and then I was like, oh, I know what's going to happen and it's perfect. I couldn't have written it better. That's why they have actual writers writing the show. That's why we weren't writing it. (laughs) Like so good and I weeped. Oh, it's just, yeah, because you have that where you think, oh, my God, yes, she's done it. She's got a Mm. home run. And then it's like you hear the crack of her knee and the absolute tragedy on her face Mm. saying it's over because she's let her whole new team down. Also, she's just come off this horrific experience where she was detained and had to be paid off and she was in danger. And it was all going to be okay because she was going to win this game Mm. for her team and that goes away. And the moment where Greta and Carson sort of come back together again and carry her and the whole team comes together and then it pans to the men in the audience are crying. And I was like, me too, bro, me too. <laughs> me too, it's so bro. like it's so sappy. They carry yeah. her across the finish line, but it's like earned oh, sap totally. because they earned the right to have an ending like that. It was the sappiest thing and I adored it. <laughs> I was like, more of that. Just an absolute mess. Because all the looks on their faces, their characters were so in this moment and also everything we knew about these women and this team made you believe they would actually do that. So that's why it didn't feel like a schmaltzy little tack on to kind of Mm -hmm. wrap it up in a bow. It felt like something that their characters had been leading to all that time where they were kind of pushing it. And even Shirley, who was kind of like always the wild card of like, she's very against anyone being queer or different to her. Uh Is she going to out them? And then even her coming in and helping to carry her was very much like when she was the one who was threatening to out Joey in the first place was kind of like, oh, these women have really come together and some of their minds have been changed. It's about more than baseball, Chelsea. Exactly. And like, I'm pretty sure that official hashtag for this show (laughs) is like, find your own team or something. Oh, that's really And it's just like such a nice little bow on the series. Like, they're more than a sports team. They're, you know, (laughs) like a family. That's why people (laughs) like sports though, because it it heightens these, I mean, not us personally, but other people like sports because they like to feel part of a team and like mm-hmm. to have these epic mm-hmm. moments and the unpredictability of it. So, like, I'm in. Maybe I watch a baseball game. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and we're both very pleased with the news that, you know, there is supposedly a season two in the works. Yes. Well, is- I mean, you cannot end a show exactly. like that, right? That's just cruel. There was just, like, cliffhangers all over the place. Like, we need more. I need to see Mike from Suits cry. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Patrick J. Abrams. He was like, he was great. Loved him. And the way that he wasn't painted as this like terrible husband. It was kind of just like, and when she's like, mm. he's my best friend. Mm. I just want to kiss Greta a lot though. And yeah, him seeing their kiss at the end is just because you can't come back from that. That's going to have a huge ricochet into season two. And then we're also seeing Max like being more of her authentic self and actually getting to play. But obviously that's not going to be a smooth path either. Mm -hmm. Like just because she's on that team now, there's going to be a lot more for her to follow. Also, Clancy, 
her husband, the baby. Oh my god, the baby. Yeah, I was like, I need to know. I know. And Greta's got a job in New York. Look, we're talking about them like they're our friends. I feel like they are our friends. There is a lot to still talk about. Like we need a season two. Yeah. Well, I mean, they said I'll see you next season, so I think they all need to. Joey too, all need to be back (laughs) in that Peach's house. And we yes. need to see a season two. And I know it's wishful thinking, but I just also want Max to be on the peaches. I know that's not going to happen because it wasn't allowed at the time, but I want those worlds to come together a bit more now. Yeah, I want the teams to play. Well, thank you so much for listening to this <laughs> bonus episode of The Spill. We'll have another episode of The Watch for you next month. But in the meantime, we'll be in your ears Monday to Friday with the pop culture news you need to know about. This episode was produced by myself, Laura Brodnick and Gia Moylent with audio production by Rihanna Mooney. And we'll see you over on mamamia.com.au. Bye. See ya.